So this is uh, chapter 8 in the story, and they call it A Few Good Men and Women Too. And uh, the way I see it, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. The oft-repeated phrase fills the book, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Very libertarian, or actually anarchist, right? <laughs> and there's an upside to this, it's kind of chaotic, but the upside is that the Lord raises up judges to lead the land who are filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to him. And I know that when we see a lot of the things that happen in government, we probably wish that all of our leaders were raised up by God and filled with the Holy Spirit and acting on his behalf. However, they also had a vicious cycle. And if you read Judges or you, you just read the story, chapter 8, you saw the cycle. It was a cycle of they would live under a godly judge and they would do well for one generation. And then what happened? They would backslide. The next gener generation would come in and everything would go to, I guess you can say, go to hell, basically. Because it would just be chaos. And that's the cycle for 400 years in the book of Judges. Uh, for instance, Judges 2.7 says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But then, verse 10, after that, a whole generation, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And that's what happened in Judges. That basically summed up the book. Here's the deal, though. They didn't pass on their faith to their children, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Think about that for a second. How did they forget everything in one generation? That means nobody was talking about it. Nobody treasured it. Parents love telling their kids about the glory days of their youths, how much harder they had it back in my day, and so on. But how do you not tell your kid what happened at Jericho? We all shouted and the walls came tumbling down. Or grandparents tell their grandchildren, you know, we were trying to cross the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was right behind us and the Lord parted the Red Sea. We walked through on dry ground. How do you not tell that story? It's amazing. God knew this would be a problem. It's the chief problem in Judges. And it has a a point for us in our lives. He told them, Exodus 13, 14, in the days to come, when your sons and daughters ask you, what does this mean? Talking about various signs. With a mighty hand, tell them, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Pass it on. Deuteronomy 6, 21, tell your children, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He even created object lessons when they crossed the Jordan. He said, have one strong man from each tribe grab the biggest rock that he could carry and carry it across the river and then place them on the other side, right where you cross. And so when your children ask you, why are these rocks here? Explain. This is where the Lord allowed us to cross the Jordan by stopping the flow of the river miraculously. So you pass it on to the next generation. But somehow the next generation came and they didn't know any of it. It does make you wonder how that could happen. I know that people in our church are praying for their children. And this isn't a critique of anybody. 
who wants to see their child draw closer to the Lord. This is actually an encouragement. I don't care how old your kid is. It's never too late for you to testify in love to your children as to what you have seen God do with your own eyes and what you've heard him say with your own ears. Some kids don't respond well to preaching, but they're always willing to help hear your stories, right? So let's pass on our stories to our children and let them know what has God done for us so that everything God has done for you gets told to the next generation. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. amen. You know, in America, from the time of the pilgrims, 400 years ago as of this November 11th, all the way through the middle of the 1960s, children learned about God in school. But the last three generations, this hasn't happened. And we can see the effect this is having on our society. So all the more important for parents, if you have young children, to make it personal as you share with them about God. Make it real. That time God saved you. That time you needed a miracle and he came through. We need to pass this on. Every miracle we've received is not just for our benefit, but for those around us. As we talk about the things that God has done. You know, we talk about what we treasure. So let's treasure what God has done. Let's talk about it. Children with parents in the, sorry, back, backwards. Parents with children in the home. Or children with parents in the home. Do we let the next generation become like the peoples around us? If you have children in your home, do we let the next generation become like the peoples around us? When we fill our homes with godless shows, I can tell you before I canceled my Netflix because they're so foul, I would try to find a show and I would go through five or six shows and it's all trash. So I'm going to tell you guys, I think you, could, you should cancel. Cancel those subscriptions to these shows that don't care about the garbage that you're flooding into your homes. You're not going to do it. I know you're with me on that. You're not going to fill your homes with that garbage. Too many Christians are complacent about filling their homes with the garbage that's out there in the world, and then their kids are raised in that. And what happens? I saw a stat about college, and I'm all for education if it's done right. But here's what's going on right now. 94% of Americans who have a high school education or less believe in God. But if you have a college education, it drops by 10 points, only 84. And it gets worse for those who believe uh, in the God of the Bible. 66% of Americans who have a high school education or less believe in the God of the Bible, which is pretty good. But only 45% if they have a college education. So yes, they're going out and they're getting educated and that helps them get a better job, but they're also being taught not to believe their faith. So I want to encourage everybody, any, anyone with a child still in the home, be praying now that the Lord will provide a way to send them to a Christian university where they can get that education but not lose their faith, right? So we need to be very strategic in what we pass on to our children. All right, I'm not going to harp on that anymore. And we can keep praying, keep being filled with hope. None of us can be perfect parents, right? So be praying, and the Lord will move miraculously in your child's life and make up for any faults you had so that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right, second broad observation. I mean, I'm going to zoom in on one of the judges here in a second, but I just want to look at the whole book here. Second observation from judges. Women can be leaders and warriors too. Amen. Any amens from any of the women here? Okay. Deborah is a judge. She led Israel for 20 years. 
She was a woman. She was the leader of the whole people. And she is the only judge who was also described as being a prophet. She was so tough that when they went to battle, they said, we're not going to go unless you come too. So she went and they, led, they won the victory. Same story, the battle that Deborah led Israel to victory. There was an enemy commander who fled from the battle after Deborah's victory. And he found a, a young woman in a house and he said, let me hide in your house. So she said, yeah, come in. He said, give me some water. So she gave him a nice cup of milk and he fell asleep. And, you know, Judges is a little bit, if they made it into a movie, they'd have a hard time making it G-rated. <laughs> she took a tent peg and she hammered it into his head as he slept. That's, uh, you know, women can get the job done. <laughs> I think a guy wouldn't try to lull him to sleep with a cup of milk. He'd probably try to fight him while he was still alive. You know, we men try to be tough. And it's a lot harder when they're awake. So the woman approach, you know, that cup of milk strategy is a good one. And this story inspired one of the great bursts of songwriting in the Bible. Deborah sang in praise of this woman. She sang this. This, this could be a rap. At her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. That's good stuff. Other women called prophets in the Bible include Miriam, Moses' sister, a lady named Huldah during the time of King Josiah, Isaiah's wife, who doesn't have a name that's given to us. Uh, Anna, at the dedication of Christ. And there was a man in Acts who had four daughters who prophesied. So, that is nice. Although, you know, I bet that guy didn't get away with anything. <laughs> Dad, we know it was you who ate the last piece of pie. We all know. <laughs> but, I'm sure he loved it. You know, prophets speak the words of God. As we know, what God speaks, he creates and calls into existence by the very act of speaking. The gift of speaking God's words is very great. I believe it's part of what makes us created in the image of God. So ladies, get prophesying. Get declaring over yourselves, over your children, your husbands, your families. Deborah's song applies Ladies, to whatever your situation or your challenge is. At your feet, your problem sinks. It falls. It lies still. At your feet, it sinks. It falls. Where it sinks, there it lies. Dead. Ladies, get declaring. Amen? Amen. Third quick general point before I look at one particular judge. When things were going well, what did they do? When things were going wrong, they, they cried out to the Lord. But what did they do when things were going just peachy king? They forgot God. Their default position seems to have been to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's what they would revert to. The fact that they turned to the Lord whenever things were going so bad that they got desperate shows you that deep down they knew better. They were planted there to be an example to the peoples around them. That was their calling. Not to become like the peoples around them. But you know, we humans can make the choice Satan made, which is to try to make yourself God, to try to be in control yourself. And I think about that with idolatry. They would keep going back to Baal, keep going back to the Asherah poles. What's with the idols? You know, in our modern times, we think, how dumb, you know, carve a block of wood with your own two hands and say, okay, here's my God. You just made that. 
You could have used that for firewood. But here's the idea with idolatry. It's a manageable God. Who's really in control? The idol worshiper is in control, not the God. And that's how humans in our, in our evil natures want to live. We want to be the ones in control, not God. So this is a manageable God for them. And that's why they kept going back. And believe it or not, we have that same tendency now to, be, to want to be in control instead of the Lord. And no one here has given into that temptation, but we see it out in our culture. And the way it manifests in our culture now isn't idol worship, is it? Because no one's creating idols, literal, literal idols anyway. But, you know, the great thing, I shouldn't say the great thing, the convenient thing about atheism is you get to skip the idol stage and just go straight to being in control. I'm the one in control. And it's the same spirit. It's the same spirit that the devil had. I want to be God. I had somebody tell me I am God when I was evangelizing. I'm God. <laughs> well, good luck with that. So whenever the prophet died, they rebelled. And the pioneer sin was this double-mindedness that said, okay, well, we'll honor the Sabbath. We'll do our festivals and so on. We'll honor the Lord. We'll, we'll, we'll give lip service. But why not also have a bail up just in case so we get the double insurance policy? He's going to bless us too. Why not also have the Asherah pole? It's double-mindedness. It's trying to serve both God and idols. And the Lord won't share you any more than a jealous spouse will share you with somebody else. The Lord's not going to share you. It's him or nothing. And where does double-mindedness lead? It always leads to single-mindedness for the enemy. In fact, what you see in the story, the history of Israel is where it went. They eventually ended up bringing the idols right into the temple of God and putting them right by the altar. And in Jeremiah, the prophet the prophet tells us that they would even go out to where they sacrificed the children, and they would sacrifice a four, five, six, seven-year-old child in the fire. This was the, what they did back then. This is why idol worship is evil, guys, because it always leads to doing what the devil tells you to do. And what the devil always wants is to kill the innocent, right? So, and then they would do that, and they would, then they would come back to Jerusalem, it says in Jeremiah, and they would worship the Lord the very same day in the temple of God. Or they would at least pretend to. So is that any true faith? No. They were completely given over. In our own time, many churches, many denominations also try to have it both ways. I'm not going to try to criticize anybody by name. But I think we understand that in our own time there can also be double-mindedness. And there can be a sense of compromise with the world. Yes, we want to have our Bible and our Christianity, but we don't want to... Stand fast against the culture. We don't want to challenge, you know, this idea out there. You probably heard the phrase secular humanism, which is basically the belief that human reason is the ultimate arbiter of truth. So what happens when human reason says one thing and the Bible says the opposite? A believer goes with the word. But out in the, there in the world and in many of our sec secularized churches, they actually go with the secular humanist model when it comes to things like Sexual morality. What do we do when the, wor the world says it's a free-for-all? Do what you feel like. And the Bible says, you know, you were created, you were designed, male and female, you get married, and that's how God designed it. What do we do? Well, many churches out there are saying, go ahead and just do what you want and, and hope for the best. And forget what the Bible says. 
And that's the same thing. It's double-mindedness. It's the same spirit that was at work in Judges. And I want to ask, how is that working out for those churches? Yeah, a Pew Research Survey of 2015 found that these denominations, mainline Protestant denominations, are declining by one million members per year. That's a lot. So they're compromising their faith into non-existence. And it's sad because many of these churches started out so well and they have such beautiful histories. The good news, the same survey found that Bible-believing churches are thriving. And it even uses the word thriving. So, you know, people are hungry for the real spirit of God. They don't want just a pep talk and a compromise, do they? So, don't be afraid to radically stand athwart the stream of our culture and say, I'm with Jesus. Amen? So that's my broad view of judges. I want to zoom in on one of them today. One of my favorite judges. And no, it's not going to be the Hulk, Samson. Sorry. We'll save Samson for another day. I did reread the Samson story. If you've never read the Samson story, you should. Judges 13 through 16 or in the story, chapter 8. And uh, man, the guy, what a guy. Real, a real man's man, you know. Surging with testosterone. He, uh, have you ever seen those? If you're, if you're on Facebook, you've probably seen those. They're called memes. And they, like, I think we have an example of one, Jeremy. Here's. Okay, I don't always trip over my own feet, but when I do, a cute girl's watching. That's an example. It's trying to be funny, right? So I thought of some of these for Samson. Like, I don't always kill a thousand Philistines, but when I do, I use a donkey's jawbone. I don't always start a fire, but when I do, I use 300 foxes. Just a complete savage. And I almost feel more sorry for the foxes than I do for the Philistines. I don't always... Ooh, this one's kind of a sad one. I don't always have weaknesses, but when I do, it's a Philistine woman. If you read the story, it's like, he has all these amazing qualities, but then, oh, here's the problem with this Philistine woman, that Philistine woman. Finally, you know, she cut his hair off and he lost all his strength. <laughs> you, have to, you have to pursue the Lord with all your heart, guys. Okay, here's, a, here's someone on the other end of the savagery spectrum. Here's a guy who was more than willing to hide from the enemy. Gideon was his name. Hiding was his game. Whereas Samson is whatever is more manly than a beta. When whatever is more manly than an alpha male, Samson, I guess, is what it is. Gideon starts out as a bit of a, I'm not going to say pansy. I'm going to say beta male. That's, but God, God works in him. You'll see. So let's look at Judges 6.1. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So the Midianites came, and whenever the Israelites would plant crops, the Midianites would come and destroy the crops. And whenever the Israelites would raise an animal to eat later, you know, or to do farm work, they would come and they would kill that animal. So they were starving. Anyone ever done any farm work? It's back-breaking labor. You know how frustrating it is to go to all that trouble to plant crops? And to wait months for the harvest time and then, and then have somebody just come in and burn your field? It's pretty frustrating. So seven years passed and finally they called out to the Lord. It took them seven years. I don't know what, what was with that. And what did God do? Uh, this is chapter 6, verse 11. 
The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. What's he doing in a wine press? It says to keep it from the Midianites. Remember, the Midianites are destroying their crops. So we have a picture of what a wine press looked like back then. Here's the picture. So you would hide. He's hiding in a hole in the ground. That's our hero. That's where he's not exactly a Samson figure, right? When the angel of the Lord shows up. And here's what the angel says. Chapter 6, verse 12. When the angel... Oh, sorry. Yeah, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love that. Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Verse 15. But, but Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. <laughs> Let's think about God's message to Gideon for a second. What did you notice about God's message to Gideon? He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have. What do you notice? Do you see how God speaks identity into Gideon's life? Gideon was the youngest and the least. That was his identity before the angel showed up. But God had a radically different view of Gideon than he had of himself. Greetings, mighty warrior, right? When you find out who God thinks you are, you'll never be the same again. What did he just say? When you find out who God thinks you are, you'll never be the same again. Now, was Gideon a mighty warrior before this, and he just didn't know it? Or did he become the mighty warrior when God spoke it? Because God, you know, when God speaks, he creates. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, once God said it, it was real. My friends, find out what God thinks of you. Find out. The Bible says wisdom is more valuable than gold. What is your most treasured material possession? Your house? Your nest egg? Your most comfortable pair of slippers? Whatever it is, find out. Finding out what God says about you is more valuable than that. And will do you more good. I don't know, I really like my favorite pair of slippers. I really like my house. Well, the good news is you don't have to give those up to find out. He wants to tell you. I was sitting in with the youth group last week because I like to be around people at my maturity level. <laughs> and Mary Vaughn was the guest speaker. And she said something profound. She said, when you think about what Jesus went through, the beatings, the floggings, the crown of thorns, the nails, six hours on the cross, the indignity of it all, the humiliation, when he had left the throne room of heaven and thousands of adoring angels for that. She said... Don't think of it as something he did for humanity or for everybody. Think of it as something he did just for you. Your sin put him there. My sin. He did it just for you. She said, really own it. I thought that was profound. That it had to happen just for you. And he did it just for you, with you in mind. When it says that Christ endured the cross... For the joy set before him. You were the joy. And he's looking forward to the hug he gets to give you when he sees you. 
That was on his mind when he went through all that suffering. What a thing to be that valued. Who are you? I include myself in what I'm about to say, so don't be offended. You are the one who beat him. You flogged him. You crucified him. And you're the one for whom he suffered it all willingly. Don't be offended. I include myself in that. We put him there with our sin. The point isn't to make us feel guilty, but to help us understand how loved and valued you are. We need to dwell on that, know who we are, and it will change us. Let's read on. 6.23 The Lord said to him, Peace. Don't be afraid. You know God says that more than any other thing in the Bible? You are not going to die. Our unsamsonly hero is still a little frightened as he scrambles out of the wine press to talk to the angel. So it says Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and he called it the Lord is peace. Nice gesture, right? But, uh-oh, what, what's God going to do? God sees it. And you know, God doesn't make small plans. Did you know that? <laughs> Let's find out what God is. God is so funny. I love God in this story. So, God says, he appears to, them, to him later that night. He says, where did he say it? Verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd. Tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar up on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole, offer the second bull as an offering. So Gideon built this little nice little altar down on the ground, out of the way. Not going to offend anybody, just, but it showed his heart was right toward God. His heart was tender toward God. No one told him to do that. He did it of his own free will. And God saw that. And God's like, okay, I have something bigger for you to do. That's a nice gesture. But here, you see that height? Build me an altar there. And I want you to use your father's altar to Baal to burn the first sacrifice. God doesn't make small plans. Keep in mind, this act could get Gideon killed. And in fact, they tried to kill him. His father had to step in and say, don't kill my son. When they woke up, Gideon did it at night. This is our beta male hero. He didn't want anybody to see him do it. So he went up at night and did all this. And when they woke up the next morning, they were like, where's the altar to Baal? Where's the Asherah pole? So they tried to kill Gideon. And his father's like, okay, guys, just let Baal deal with him. Baal will take care of him. So that worked. I don't know, guys. I think pretty sure Baal just showed that he can't even protect his own altar. But that did the trick. But you see how the Lord wanted Gideon, once he showed that his heart was right with God, to make a point of being as public as possible about it and not to be afraid. And the Lord will do that with us. Once he sees that our hearts is right with him, then there's no telling what he's going to do. But it's good, isn't it, when he moves. We like it. He takes us outside of our comfort zone. You can bet that took Gideon out of his comfort zone. He did it at night. He knew he was going to get in trouble. But he was faithful, and it worked out. How many times do we find people who get saved, and they come to church, and they get right with God, and they think their life is going to be just to be somebody in the pew for the rest of their lives. And they don't realize that God is going to make them a leader. He's going to give them a ministry. He's, he's given them gifts. He's going to use them. And I hope everybody here knows Jesus, when he spoke to Peter and said, feed my lambs. That's what he's saying to you and to me. 
feed my lambs. Because after a while, a fed lamb becomes a shepherd in Christianity, and then you start feeding other lambs. And God has plans for you as your hearts are right with God to be moved into something bigger and better each day. Amen? Okay. There's a lot more to the Gideon story, but I'm running out of time, so I'm going to cut to the chase. The same pitchfork-wielding mob that wanted him dead flocks to his banner when he tells them God has called him to, to fight the Midianites and deliver them from the Midianites. And 30,000 people come to his aid. But God says, you know, God, all <laughs> God is always messing with Gideon. He says, 30,000 is a bit too many, Gideon, because they'll take credit for it themselves. And I need credit for it so they can get their hearts right with me. So Gideon says, okay, everybody, anybody who's afraid, go home. He's probably hoping, please nobody be afraid. I want this 30,000-man army. But 20,000 went home. So now he's left with just 10,000 against all the Midianites. And God says, it's still too many. They'll, they'll still take credit. How about 300? So Gideon has to go face the Midianites with just 300 men. He's probably thinking, God, this is the altar thing all over again. Why do you have to make everything so difficult? Well, he was faithful. They did a night attack. The Midianites were moved by the Lord to get confused, and they started killing each other. And it says Gideon chased the Midianites well into the next morning, and he delivered Israel from the enemy. What's striking here in the end, the biggest struggle was how easy it was. The biggest problem was getting his army down to 1% of what it was so God could get the glory. Otherwise, it's not much of a miracle. God wanted to do a miracle. If we do the possible, we can take credit. We tend to take credit when we do something that's within our grasp. If it doesn't feel like it's too much for you, it's too little. What did he just say? If what you're doing feels like something that's just enough for you, but not too much, it's too little. Don't be dismayed. When the situation God has allowed to arise can only be solved by a miracle because he wants to do a miracle. And that's where the fun begins, right? Yeah. Amen. All right. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing on us and we'll dismiss the service. So let's be in a receptive mode here. Jesus, thank you that we entered your presence today through praise. We love being in your courts. Let us stay in your courts all week. It's better as one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I declare over everyone here, make us know who we are. Like Gideon, make us know who we are. Because we want to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace and blessing, my friends.